And now for something completely different. A radio show about books. Didn't think it through at all. Inconceivable! <laughs> yes, the show's serious. That's totally a thing. Thank you. Tarzan of the Apes. Brought to you from out the pages of Edgar Rice Burroughs' immortal book. Oh, wow. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. And now for your host, Daniel Thompson, a completely underqualified buffoon who has no idea why he's here in the first place. And all were amazed and said, this guy is really good. Do you do children's parties? Hello, my peoples, and welcome again to the Very Serious Rating Show. I'm your host, Daniel Thompson, but you probably already knew that. And today, we have in studio a person who needs no introduction, but I have all this time for the intro, so I'm going to do it anyway. K.M. Wayland. K.M. Wayland, the author of Behold the Dawn, A Man Called Outlaw, Dreamlander, and is just, just a fabulous person in general. And there, there are sometimes guests that I bring on the show, and they, they have a quality about them that is really fascinating to me. They, they bring in these, like, bombs of truth, the truth bombs, to be specific, and I'm just left flabbergasted by the truth that these people drop into the universe. And... I, and I'm pretty much useless in the whole process as a result. K.M. Voiland is one of those people I was constantly left in awe during the interview of her amazing powers. Because she has, she has the power to, like, write stories and tell you how to write stories and to fly. And she also has heat vision. So without further ado, K.M. Voiland. You're here because we want the best, and you're it. Nope, couldn't keep a straight face. I am no man. How you doing today, Cam? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing very well. How should I address you? I've only ever seen your name in its <laughs> abbreviated form. Yes, my name is Katie, and you can call me that. Awesome, that is a wonderful thing. Katie, what's crackalackin'? Um, well... You mean what's going on? <laughs> well, yes, that too, but, you know. <laughs> well, I am uh, keeping busy. I've just started outlining a new novel and started working on um, a book on character arcs as well, so keeping Ooh, busy. yeah. Okay, so just to make this totally awkward at the beginning, I, I should let you know that I'm, I'm a huge fan. I've read your stuff for some time now. Um, got introduced to it early on by Brayden Russell. Mm-hmm buddy of mine and like I actually have a signed copy of Behold the Dawn well cool of yours which I love that book I've read that one I've read Dreamlander and I've read your outlining book okay well cool all of which I really enjoyed so hearing about this character arc book sounds that's exciting how long have you been working on that um, well, it's been stuff, information that I've been working on for uh, several years now it's stuff I've done on my blog and um 
had a course that I put out here recently on it, so I'm just kind of compiling all that into a book. And yeah, it's information that I'm really excited about too, because when I started figuring it out, it was, I mean really it was kind of one of those life-changing kind of moments where everything just clicks and it brought together, you know, everything that's important about character development and then tied it in with story structure, which as you probably know, I'm a really big proponent of. And so it's been something that's been really revolutionary and exciting for me in my own writing. And I'm really excited to be able to share it with other people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you, yeah, you make a really good case for outlining in, in your previous book, the outlining a novel. Yeah. Um, outlining is some, it's one of those things that I have tried to write books without outlines and actually, I tried to write one book without an outline, and it was a total disaster, and I'm I'm never doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, people talk about how outlines are a lot of work up front, you know, you don't get to get into the story, and they're just too much work, and they take too much time. But for me, it's just the opposite, and I think you save so much time and so much stress in the long run when you do all that preparation up front, and you answer all of the big questions about the story and you kind of figure out, you know, what what plot elements are not going to develop, uh, where, where you're going to end up with the dead ends and plot holes that need filled in. If you get all of that figured out as much as possible before you actually start writing the first draft, then the whole process is just so much easier. And I think you end up with a so much more of a better product at the end than you do otherwise as well. I would agree with that. I've tried writing without outlines. It doesn't really work for me either. Yeah. Now, was it was it Dreamlander? Was that the story that you tried writing without the outline? I'm yeah, trying to remember. I um, started... Well, what had happened was I had outlined another story and then realized for a couple of reasons that it just wasn't going to work. So I just spent all this time prepping for a book and I just wanted to get... I wanted to write something. So the, the thought of, well, I've got to go through all of this again, all of this preparation work and the outlining... And I just didn't want to do that. So I'm like, okay, I'll just jump in and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, it didn't go well. It was like 50 pages in and the plot was a disaster. I had no idea where my characters were going. And it was probably the most stressful writing experience <laughs> that I've ever had. So I stopped. I'm just like, okay, that's enough. I stopped and I re-outlined what I'd already done and then completed the, the outline for the entire story. And it just worked so much better after that. It gets the headache of the logistics at the beginning of the process. It gets it out of the way so you can mm -hmm. get into the story, I think. And yeah, like you exactly. Don't, you don't want to have to go rewrite. It's easy to rewrite uh, like an outline. Yeah. <laughs> not easy. Not easy to rewrite those 50 pages again. Yeah, totally. And that's another reason that I really like outlines. Because it's so much easier to work through plot problems and plot developments and oh this is a good idea and follow it kind of to its logical end and see if it works rather than writing you know 50 pages of it before you realize that this is totally not working and you have to start all over yeah no that's not a good place in life to be no it's very frustrating <laughs> okay so outlining you, you had the outlining your novel and then you have structuring your novel now what's the difference between these two Okay, so my approach to outlining is basically just kind of, it's the brainstorming phase. It's where you're throwing your ideas uh, for your story onto your um, the page, onto the, your outline. 
and just kind of figuring it out. I ask lots of what if questions, um, what's, what would be expected in a story like this, what would be unexpected, and just really trying to explore the whole concept and premise of the story to its full extent so that hopefully I'm taking um, as much advantage of it as I possibly can. And just trying to get a rounded sense of the whole story. So structuring um, obviously plays a big role within outlining as you start actually plotting the story. But structure in itself is just the overall arc of the story and the prominent beats that you have to create within that arc to make sure the story really works and you've got this cohesive whole overall mm -hmm. within the three-act structure. So that's something that, you know, as I'm outlining, once I get past all the big, big picture questions, I start really focusing on um, the structural things and plotting it beat by beat so that um, by the time I'm finished with the outline, I have that entire structured story and I can go into the first draft with you know, the confidence that this is going to be something that's going to work, um, which it does 90% of the time, which of course is awesome. Yeah, that's, that's really great. That makes a lot of sense. I've struggled with structure a lot, mostly on my, my current work in progress. Mm -hmm. This is more of a comedy slice of life Monty Python-esque thing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a horrible little creature, really. It's so much fun, but it's a horrible little creature. Yeah, I it know, won't... exactly. <laughs> That's a good way to describe some projects. <laughs> That's how I describe all my projects, <laughs> going to be honest. 100% yeah. honest with you, but yeah. So do you deal with different types of structures for different types of stories, or do you think that the, you know, the, the solid three-act structure as you present it, it does, does it fit for most stories, you think? Obviously, there's a ton of variation out there, and there are um, you know, different approaches to structure that people take. But the three-act structure, um, in its essence, is something that is pretty much universal to stories um, throughout time. I mean, I, I read Homer's um, The Iliad a couple years ago, and I was you know, really excited and, and surprised, really, to discover that it follows the three-act structure and all of the, the important beats perfectly. So here's this thing, you know, that's been written uh, 1,500 years ago, and it's still following the same structural patterns that successful stories today are using. It's something we find in all cultures. It's, you know, across time. So it's really, it's this universal pattern. And Yeah, the monomyth. Inter the interesting, yeah. The interesting thing about it, to me, is that most of us are, are following this structure instinctively before we ever consciously learn about it. When I first started learning about structure, you know, it resonated, I'm like, yeah, this is great. But, you know, there's this little voice in the back of my head going, oh, all these stories I've already written, they're probably horrible and they don't follow <laughs> the structure. So I got up and I went and looked, you know, I thumbed through to the, the percentage marks. And pretty much all of these stories that I had written before I knew anything about structure were still more or less properly structured. And hmm. I think that's why structure is such an important and powerful tool for novelists, because it's something that resonates very deeply on, on an almost primal level within just the, the psyche of humanity. So it's something that everybody resonates with, whether they're a writer or not, because it's something that creates this powerful ebb and flow, action and reaction, and development and evolution of a character that makes sense because it mimics what happens in real life. So I think structure is, it's really important and, and wonderful because it's so universal. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give away any spoilers for either of your <laughs> books, but you've got you've got fun stuff, unexpected things that happen in Behold the Dawn, and um, unexpected consequences of things in like Dreamlanders. Mm-hmm. Is are those things that you came up with in the structuring process, or were those found uh, in writing? A little of both. Um, how my process generally works is just because of the way timing works out, I'm busy on other projects and things. Most of my story ideas kind of kick around in my head for a couple of years, at least, Mm. before I'm actually ready to sit down and start outlining them. So during, I call that the conception phase. And during that phase, um, it's it's just a very um, subconscious kind of a process where I just have scenes and images and characters that are just kind of appearing in my imagination. It's it's not something that I'm trying to take conscious control of, particularly, and trying to create a story out of it. I'm just discovering kind of what's there for the, the premise and the concept idea. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, I think, my best ideas come out of that, that period, because that's when I'm not trying to impose, you know, my conscious forebrain onto what's going on. I'm just it's just kind of welling up and I think that that's raw creativity and that's where the good stuff really comes from and then but then when I get ready to outline I kind of start filling in the blanks and figuring out you know what what has to happen to connect these two scene ideas or what would be the a character's motivation for why he does whatever it was that I had an idea and so a lot of of interesting things come from that and particularly like you said con- consequences um, or mm-hmm. Dream was a big thing in Dreamlander. And consequences are always something that really start coming out when I'm consciously outlining, because I have to figure out, you know, if they do this, then what's logically going to happen? Yeah, and cause I'm always looking for what's the worst thing that could happen <laughs> to make this choice, because that's, I think, where we start really getting into interesting aspects of character and theme. Mm-hmm. And I love the consequences in Dreamlander. I feel like it sets Dreamlander apart from other modern fantasy that I've read. You know, it. I mean, it's... For, for a story that kind of has elements out of the, you know, the, the alternate world stuff that you, we get in stories like Narnia and, mm-hmm. and um, like, what was the other one? The Batson's books. Um, I, I thought that that was a really cool element and I appreciated it a lot oh, thank you. <laughs> as a reader. Re- <laughs> I, really I have fun it. with that as a writer. I'm always just, I want to... I think it's a cop-out sometimes when authors don't explore the dark side of choices. Because number one, it's just it's too easy for the characters. And number one, they're missing so much good stuff. Because the dark side of our choices is, is where we really find some interesting things to explore and develop. Mm-hmm. So you're, you said you're, you're working on the, uh, the, character, the character arc book, mm-hmm. which I'm excited about. I'm going to keep, keep an eye out. Do you know, do you have a release date on that yet? Uh, I don't have anything set in stone yet, but I'm definitely hoping for before the end of this year, shooting for maybe late fall or something like that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, what what's the uh, what's the fiction book you're writing, though? It's actually the sequel to Dreamlander. There's a sequel? <laughs> yeah. Well, when I wrote, when I wrote Dreamlander, I, I totally intended it to be a standalone. And um, it was just one of... And I kind of wrote myself into a corner as far as, well, how am I going to get the protagonist back to the fantasy world? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was hit with an idea last summer, and because they just, you know, it was one of those things where the characters just kept gnawing at me. So I'm really excited about that. I'm having a ton of fun uh, with the early parts of the outline on that. Oh, that's that's great. I'm I'm very excited to hear about this. Now, as you've been writing like the book on outlining and structuring, 
Does does that help you focus on outlining structuring? Does that make that process easier for you on books like uh, like the Crosswinds? Did I get oh the yeah, tile right. Did I get the tile right. It is Crosswinds. I haven't read that one yet. Uh, you're probably talking about Storming, which was Storm. Yes, yeah. sorry. But that's a good title though. Crosswinds is a good title. <laughs> <laughs> it's Storming. Yes, my apologies. Um, but yeah, yeah, it definitely helps. Um, I think you know. I, I often say that I think that I learn more from teaching writers than anybody I teach actually learns because there's just something about having to organize your thoughts for you know to, to, to convey them to other people that is really helpful to me in solidifying concepts and ideas that I have and, and helping me remember them and just kind of ingraining them into my process. But yeah, I actually, I'll go back sometimes and I'll flip through the books that I have on writing and I'll, I'll reference them while I'm actually <laughs> doing my own outline. So yeah, I, I really, I learn, like I said, I probably learn more than anybody does from the process. Oh, that's really cool. I, I enjoyed the outlining book. I thought it was I thought it was really helpful. I use that along with uh, the one year adventure novel mm -hmm. curriculum. I reference those two all the time in my early processes. So, oh, thank is, you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So, like, let's see. Like, characters come first, or in the conception stage, or do plot lines come first for you? A little of both. I mean, I'm I don't I am not a person who likes this whole idea that it's plot versus character, because yeah. I think I mean ultimately they're one and the same. You can't have plot without character, and you can't have character without plot. And particularly when you get into understanding character arc and how integral it is to story structure, which is plot, they're just they're two sides of the same coin. But that said, I mean, it always starts with character for me. There's a character that comes along. I, I usually have a very vivid image. Um, usually there's a second character that follows on its heels and they start arguing and then immediately you have plot. <laughs> so I have this sense usually of, of setting, of time, of place, and um, a very general sense of a conflict. And then it just kind of starts, you know, I start asking, there's interesting questions to ask and it starts snowballing from there. Okay, so here's a quick question. I just don't know. Did you start blogging before you started writing the outlying book, or did did the blogging how that flow? Well, I had I think I started the blog after my first book, which was A Man Called Outlaw. After that came mm -hmm. out, and um, I started it because at that point, particularly, every author was supposed to have a blog for marketing purposes, and yep. I was like, well, what am I going to blog about? So I just started sharing, as so many authors do, I started sharing about my my writing process. And of course, outlining has pretty much from the beginning been a very integral part of that process, with the exception of Dreamlander. <laughs> um, but so it was something that I've always been really passionate about because it's helped me so much. And so I started sharing that, and then eventually the, a lot of what I shared on the blog ended up becoming the outlining book. Okay, that's a cool process to go about it. Yeah, yeah. They they say that every author really has to have a blog at this point. It's been, it's it's really demanding. <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, what, we're, it is. what we're all supposed to do yeah. on the the interwebs now. Yeah, but I find it really rewarding too. I really do. I mean, it is a lot of work, but like I said, I don't think I think I learn more from it than anybody does. So, even if nobody was reading the blog, it's something that I still reap large benefits from myself in my own writing. So do you do research for your blog posts and really flesh out the topic you're talking about then? Um, for the Before most you... part, it's just, it's, 
stuff that ideas that I come up with that I or revelations that I have about how the process works or just my own um, little habits and techniques that I think other people will be helpful. So it's not generally something that I have to do a lot of research on. There are exceptions now and then, but usually I try not to write about things until the point where I feel I have such a good grasp on it that I can share it, you know, without having to constantly reference other uh, the points of view in books and things like that. Okay, yeah. So less research paper, more just wait until you have the proper understanding. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, talk to me a little bit about, I have this sitting on my shelf, I haven't read it yet, your Jane Eyrie annotation. Jane Eyrie, yeah, I did that for Writer's Digest a couple of years ago, and that was a really fun project. Um, what they what they wanted to do was create this series of, um, where they were taking like classics, like Jane Eyre, and they did one on Dracula, and have authors um, kind of annotate them with an eye toward revealing what it was about these classics and what the authors did to create them that made them such wonderful and enduring stories that we still read hundreds of years later. So that was like right in my wheelhouse because I'm a big classics literature person. It's, you know, it's my goal to read all the classics at some point <laughs> before I die, which may not happen. <laughs> but, uh, long list. Good luck. Yeah. I had read Jane Eyre though, so we were good on that. But yeah, it was, it was huge for me just because Honestly, I had always kind of resisted really, really analyzing books that I liked because I felt like, oh, I'll lose the magic if I understand the framework too much. But I actually found in annotating that book that it was just the opposite and that the deeper I got into it and the more I studied it and figured out, you know, what it was that made this story work and what Bronte did, the more I appreciated the book. And actually, it was in writing... Um, that in annotating Jane Eyre that I really, the whole character arc thing just clicked for me and that was like just super exciting for me and it was, you know, it was totally worth writing the book even if that was as far as it had gone <laughs> because it, it, it just, I felt like it just took everything that I had understood up to that point to the next level. So that was a really exciting book for me and I, um, it's one of those books that I think, I think Writer's Digest kind of ended up having a hard time marketing it because it's, a lot of people are like, what's that? It's it's not something that's obvious, what, but I feel like it's it's just like was such a good idea on their part, and I was really happy to be a part of it. Yeah, no, it is a cool idea. So this this character this character arc book that you're writing, give, can you give me some teasers on some of the stuff that's going to be in it? Some of the stuff you've you've come up with for it. Yeah, so the primary um, focus of the book is obviously there's there's three different types of character arcs that we can pretty much divide the majority of character evolution and stories down to. So we've got the positive change arc where the character starts out in not such a good place and he's then of course he ends up over the course of the story evolving and changing and growing ends up in a better place. Now we've got the flat arc which is where the character is already pretty much in a good place and is able to use his own understanding and knowledge to help others around him change. So he's not changing, but the world is changing around him. And then of course we have the tragic arcs, which is where the character starts out in a good place or sometimes a not so good place and then devolves into an even worse place. And the way I teach character arcs is it all centers around the idea that there is a lie and a truth that is posited by the story construct and the theme. And depending on what type of arc it is, 
the character is either going to end up rejecting the lie and embracing the truth, or rejecting the truth and embracing the lie. So in a positive change arc, he's going to start out where he's believing this lie, this misconception about the world or himself or whatever, and that is prompting him to want the wrong things in his life, destructive things sometimes, and also ultimately keeping him back from you know, personal centeredness and empowerment. So over the course of the story, he has to be able to get to a point through the events of the external conflict where he's able to reject that lie and start embracing the truth, which will eventually harmonize it to some degree or another, depending on the story, in allowing him to overcome the external antagonistic force. So it really kind of, it just ties in together. It ties in together plot, it ties in character, and it ties in theme, so that you bring all of these three powerhouse elements of story into this one cohesive whole, which to me is like the most exciting thing about the whole journey. Yeah, that's yes. Like my mind is blown at the moment. <laughs> that was that was a really good way of explaining those 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 types of of character models. Oh, now, you. now what 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 do you get if you have a character that he starts out in a good place, devolves over the course of the story, but has a redemption moment after embracing lies? That is that a type? I don't see that done a whole lot, and I'm curious. Well, the truth is. In 90% of the cases with a story like that, it's usually a mistake for the simple reason that the redemption in the end is not set up. The reason it takes, you know, a whole story for a positive art character to essentially be redeemed is because that evolution from lie to truth is not a split second decision. It's something that needs to be built up, cause and effect, cause and effect over the course of the story. So if you don't set that up, in a story where the character is basically declining through the whole thing, then it often feels like a cop-out. It feels like the author just threw it in there, you know, to give the character a redemption moment. It's possible for this to work in a story where the character kind of, he, it's a negative arc through the entire story, and then he pulls it out at the last minute, but it's not enough to save, um, to correct the mistakes, you know, the consequences mm -hmm. of what he would have done, or he has to pay for it in a massive way, such as, you know, with his own life. But generally, that's something that I'm, I'm very cautious in recommending people to take that approach, just because it's one of those things where the payoff in the end is not usually sufficiently set up in the beginning. Okay, so that'd be kind of a, uh, like the first example where it kind of feels more like a cop-out, maybe, uh, the Hobbit film, where we have Thor and Oakenshield suddenly get better. Okay, I actually haven't seen movie. those, so I'm not. Oh, sure. so I'm sorry. <laughs> no, um, that's right. You've seen Star Wars, though, right? Oh yeah. Okay, so like Darth Vader would be a good example in in the sixth film. Right. Um, and there there's a good argument for that actually, because we don't see hardly any redemption up until the third film. But I feel like that generally does work because we definitely see his throughout throughout the entirety of the third film, we do see you know him slowly having doubts and conflict, and the fact that he is not the protagonist um, means mm -hmm. that we don't feel cheated for not having been with him for every step of that journey that he's making. Okay, so that makes a difference if it's a, it's a if it's a character other than the protagonist. Right, because At some level. yeah, the protagonist is someone where the, the readers expect to be you know in this person's shoes for the entire story, and that becomes less and less and less the more removed they are from any particular character. Okay, now if I was going to look for a good example of a tragedy, where where would I look? 
like the tragic arc. Okay, there's actually, interestingly enough, I, I always say there's there's like there's only one way to do things right, but there's a ton of ways to do things wrong. So it's interestingly enough, there's only one way to do a positive arc, but there's at least three ways to do a negative arc. So we've hmm. got um, the disillusionment arc which is essentially a positive arc in the sense that the character is moving from a lie to a truth. But in this instance, the truth is a dark truth that is not going to make his life better. So the example that I like to use for that one would be The Great Gatsby, which is, yeah. okay, if you're familiar with that, um, you have just the character Nick Carraway, who, who is very hopeful and optimistic in the beginning. And then through his experiences with Gatsby's um, rich set, he becomes very disillusioned and ultimately you know he's better off for having learned what he learns but it's not a happy truth so that's a disillusionment arc and then we have the fall arc which is where the character starts out believing um, a truth and then falls you know slowly to the lie and is is destroyed by it ultimately and one of the examples I really like for that is Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, which is the story of uh, Heathcliff, who um, is this adopted orphan and ends up pretty much going on this madcap trip of vengeance throughout the entire story because uh, nobody understands him and he's really mad at him. So obviously that's a pretty tragic and negative. And then we have the corruption arc, which is where the character starts out in a really good place and he believes he knows the truth. He has every opportunity to embrace it. And then because of events in the story, he slowly is pulled over and ends up embracing and being destroyed by the lie. And the example I like for that actually is um, Darth Vader's story in the prequels of yeah. Star Wars, which I'm not a fan of. But um, I do feel it's, it's, so it's a good So hard to find example. a fan of the prequels. Yeah. It's so hard it, to find yeah. one. <laughs> well, they just make me sad because they could have been so good. I see, I, I see the potential for what was there and it just didn't work. But anyway, Anakin Skywalker is a good example of the corruption arc. Gotcha. Oh my gosh. If, if this book is even half as good as the stuff that you're laying on me, <laughs> oh my gosh, I want this book. Okay. Well, this gives me a lot of good ideas for my story. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate this. Now, do you still do a lot of blogging? I do. Yes. I blog twice a week on helping writers become authors. Okay, cool. What's what's the uh, what's the website name for that? Yeah, helping helping writers become authors.com. Okay, very cool. And you also have your your KM Wyland site. Yeah, that's which... more kind of just my static author site for that kind of represents my fiction more than the writing stuff. Oh, okay. I was looking on that. If you it said something about signing up for I like doing giveaways on the show, but like you have it set up to where people can download your uh, the the Behold the Dawn book. mm Mhm. Yeah, that is actually, um, it's kind of a big thing in the marketing realm these days. But the idea of using, you know, a really big incentive to get people to, you know, hop over to your mailing list. Because that's that's such a powerful tool um, right now at this stage of internet marketing for, you know, being able to get in contact with your readers and your fans and keep that contact going so that when you're ready to launch another book, hopefully they're... Um, they're already interested in what you're doing and committed to reading it. Have you found that personally to be really to be really helpful in your marketing? I have, yes, definitely. It's been a, a very good technique for me up to this point. Well, very cool. And that book is so worth like signing up for an email. <laughs> <laughs> that it is so good. I love. I, I love. That. I forced my brother to read it. 
<laughs> we got him to do it. He homeschooled. So, I mean, we worked it into the curriculum. It was pretty great. <laughs> oh, I have to admit, I mean, authors aren't supposed to have favorite books any more than parents are supposed to have favorite children, but that one's kind of still my favorite child. Is it really? Yeah. What was, well, how'd you start it? Do you have a little bit of the story on it? Actually, that one was one I had, I think my little brother had brought home a book from the library about William Marshall, who was um, the Marshal of England in like uh, King Richard's era, the, mm-hmm. the, the King's Crusade, the Third Crusade. And I, it's just, uh, it just something about it, you know, was really interesting to me, the idea that he had competed in these tourneys and then kind of felt the need to go to a crusade to redeem himself. And that just was kind of the kernel of the seed of the idea for Annan, who's the main character in Behold the Dawn. And it just kind of kept chewing at me, and that's where the the, the seed of that whole story kind of came from. Okay. Well, I really love the characters in that story. Uh, Annan's uh, plot line was fantastic. I loved uh, I loved the Baptist. Yeah. And you probably hear that a lot. But like. <laughs> no, I don't actually. Really? <laughs> well, he's like creepy. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, as far as creepy characters go, he's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he started out, that was, he was probably the most, um, the character that changed the most over the course of my island. Because in the very beginning, he started out where he was like, a super good guy and, and was trying, you know, really out there to try to redeem Anne and soul and ends up dying to save him in the end. And obviously, that's totally not how it ended up happening. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> not even close in the end. Yeah, I kind of felt like his character identity was never... It, it was kind of hard to tell who, what side he was on And at, at the beginning of the story. There's a lot of ambiguity mm-hmm. involving him, and that, that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, no. Loved him. Yes. Good well, I'm, so, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It makes my day to hear that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hey, we're going to need to wrap up pretty quick. So... Do you, do you you run a Facebook, a Twitter? What can what can people do to find you on the internet? Oh gosh, Just... I'm everywhere. So whatever people are on, they can probably find me. But Facebook and Twitter are my big ones. Um, Twitter, it's just at KM Wyland if you want to find me. And I'm on Pinterest. I'm on Instagram, Google Plus. Uh, you name it, pretty much Goodreads, and you can find yeah. me there. All right. Well, Katie, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been fantastic talking with you. Absolutely, I had a really good time. All right. Well, hey, you have a great day, and I'll catch you later. You too. And that's the end of Life As We Know It. In the next life, you should feel free to like this on Facebook, share it on Twitter, and retweet, whatever. Like, let's stop for a moment. Like, how weird is it that we have a social media dedicated to birds? Like, what do birds have to do with social media? Like, birds, all they do is scream their heads off in the morning, and... Some people pay attention and some people don't. But the birds themselves don't seem to pay attention to each other. And I actually think I've just described Twitter. (laughs) I think... (laughs) I think that's... (laughs) I understand now. Okay, never mind. So, yeah, I have one of those. And sometimes I'm on Goodreads, so there's that too. This podcast can be found on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And you should also check out K.M. Wyland's website, because that gal is amazing. Her stuff is fantastic. I've never read something by her that I didn't like and didn't get something out of when it comes to, like, her writing curriculum. And, yeah, it's worth checking out. And you can get a free book on her website. I think I probably already mentioned that. I don't know. Anyway, so I'm going to go to bed now, and you all can, like, keep enjoying your Monday. 
I'm going to nap. So, sucks to be you. This is what I get for freelancing over the summer. So, anyway, any strudel 